0: Before we uh, get into the scripture, I want to ask you a question. I'm thinking about shifting on Sunday mornings from the New American Standard to the New Living Translation. Um, Now, the the New American Standard has this going for it. It's a very literal translation. Uh, so you're closer to the the actual words of the Hebrew and Greek text. Um, the downside is sometimes the words that it uses are um, old words. Uh, I want to say archaic, but it's not it's not like the King James archaic. It's just older language, and the sentences are clumsy because of trying to hang on to the literalness. The New Living translation, the reason why I'm thinking about that is that it's so readable. And uh, there's so little I have to explain in, in going through it because it explains itself. The downside is it does a lot of interpreting because its goal is to give us the idea of what the original says without giving us the original. It's called a dynamic equivalence approach to translation. Uh, rather than a literal approach or a paraphrase. So um, that means that I'll still be as true to the text, the original text, as I can. And there will be, of course, always explanations just to get us uh, back to those important words that have so much to do with the meaning of a text. But just simply reading it will be a lot easier. So um, what do you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The NIV is also a dynamic equivalent translation. What does the Holy if, Spirit say? I'm sorry, what? What does the Holy Spirit say? He says do it. Oh, OK. Well, there you have it. <laughs> Thank you, Miriam. Um, if you have any strong negative feelings about it, please, after the service, talk to Jim. Yeah. <laughs> now, he... he he can take that. What's the again? New Living Translation. It, it's like um, going back to the idea of the New Living Bible, only that's a paraphrase, not a translation. Hey Chuck, is there a reason you can't just fix whichever one you think is better for the, text the one? I can, but you know, sometimes people um, have strong feelings about it. It's like we want to stick to the original text. <laughs> we'll get someone in here yeah, who can I'm read. Here. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not say where they are. <laughs> yeah, they might sneak in. Uh, all right. Then uh I mean I have so many translations because somebody wanna buy it and then they want to do a traffic. Oh yeah, no. Just get an app. I don't do appear. Oh really? Well, I was thinking maybe I should have someone come here and just reads Hebrew. (laughs) Just a little more mystifying than the NASB. All right, so NASB today, I think NLT next week. That sounds like a sandwich, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, We're in Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. That doesn't mean they're brothers and sisters. Um, house of and daughter of re- refers to the tribe. You know, that the Hebrew doesn't have, the biblical Hebrew does not have words like uncle, aunt, grandpa. Uh, so anyone who's an ancestor is a father or a mother. So anyway, <clears throat> the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, She hid him for three months. Now, why'd she do that? Remember? That's right. Because Pharaoh had said, any boy that was born to a Hebrew had to be thrown in the Nile. So she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Aren't you glad there wasn't <coughs> Facebook then? You know, We'd be looking at these pictures of this little baby with tar and pitch all over its face, You know, and, and the mom would be so, oh, isn't he cute? And we'd think, what a mess. Anyway, last week we saw how discomfort in our lives pushes us into change. I may not want to change, but it hurts too bad I have to. This week, we're going to see how becoming comfortable tempts us to settle in. I'm going to stay here for a while because it's nice. The plot in today's episode is about keeping Moses safe. And more than once, his life is endangered. We want to keep him safe because he's the hero. Uh, Suspense is raised when he's born. I really should do this before I get here. Excuse me. Suspense is raised when he's born and hidden and then put in this basket. And then it's resolved when Pharaoh's daughter finds him and takes him to be her own child. Suspense is raised again when he becomes an adult, gets himself into trouble, and it's resolved when he leaves Egypt and finds a home in the uh, Sinai Peninsula and settles down. So Pharaoh's command, according to Pharaoh's command, he should have been thrown in the Nile when he was born. Now, later on, we're going to learn the names of Moses' parents. But here's a man from the tribe of Levi and a daughter of Levi. Uh, They're just stock characters, a mother and a father. And they exist only to get the baby on the scene. And the storyteller wants to keep the focus on the baby. This, this is the hero, the, uh, the protagonist in this episode. And he is pretty much through the rest of the book. It isn't difficult to imagine what went through the mother's heart when she looked at her baby boy. He's got all of his fingers and toes. He's beautiful. Or the Hebrew word tov means good, the, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He's on the good side. He's healthy. He's um, uh, well put together. He's a keeper. And that's her feeling immediately. And remember, she's already been bonding with him for nine months um, because moms do that with the uh, child in the womb. So um, what she does is she gathered papyrus reeds from the Nile, and she wove a basket. She waterproofed it. And um, she placed him in it. Now, the King James does well in referring to this as an ark, because it's the same word for Noah's ark. And remember, that protected them from the waters of the flood. And then there's the ark of the covenant, which will come a little bit later on in the same book. And here's this ark, and the ark simply refers to a structure somewhat like a box or a chest. And when you put all these things together, you can see that what's placed in the ark are items that are precious. The lives of Noah and his family. The life of this beautiful baby. The Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod through which God works so many miracles, placed in the Ark of the Covenant. So it's, some, it, it's a receptacle to hold things that are precious. And the idea is to preserve what's in there, preserve the lives, or preserve the testimonies of God's care for Israel. So um, technically, she did put him in the Nile, didn't she? Okay, I I did what Pharaoh commanded. I put him in the Nile in a safe little container. But he's he's floating along. And um, the baby has an older sister. And she stuck around by the Nile. She wants to see what happens to her baby brother. I, I think that's kind of sweet. And for the time being, the baby is relatively safe. Now, we're still at the beginning of the story, last week and this week. And there are two interesting developments. I think they're interesting. Typically, you can identify the plot of a story if you ask, what's the tension in the story? Um, how You start with a situation where everything is normal. It's copacetic. And then there's some complication. It raises suspense. And if you ask the question, what's the conflict, you can usually find the plot. Because the plot is all about this arc of normal, event, uh, with climax, resolution, or denouement. And then you either go back to normal, or you have a new normal, a completely new situation. But it goes. Level again for a while. So, in this case, the conflicts that drive the plot are caused by men. And all the heroes that resolve the tension are women the midwives, Moses' mom, now his sister, and next. Of all people, it's Pharaoh's daughter who comes down to the Nile not long after the baby was placed in it. And she came with her entourage of maidens to bathe in the Nile. The word bathe, every other time it's used in the book of Exodus from here on, refers to a ritual washing or or purification. And perhaps there's something about that in, in what she's doing so she spotted this small basket stuck in the reeds. And she sends a maid to go check that out. And she comes back carrying the basket. And when she removes the lid, the baby is crying. Um, in fact, it's the only time in the scriptures when this particular word is used of an infant. Usually, it's, it's adults that weep this hard. And uh, uh, I think it was Peter Marshall who said, right at the moment when she lifted the lid, an angel pinched the baby. Uh, uh, Because uh, Moses definitely uh, elicits her sympathies. And she says, ah, um, it's one of the Hebrew children. Uh, How did she know that? Well, who else would have placed their baby in a basket in the Nile Um, and taken this risk with its life other than someone who had been ordered to throw their child in the Nile. Right then, the baby's sister shows up and says, hey, would would you like me to find a Hebrew woman to be a wet nurse for the baby? And Pharaoh's daughter said, go. Just one more, go. Which is like saying yes, and at the same time, do it. And so soon she comes back with the baby's mother, who says, "You know, I just happen to have a little extra milk." <coughs> and um, and and now it's not a negotiation. Okay, this is Pharaoh's daughter. She's not negotiating. But she says, "You, take the baby and nurse it, and I'll pay you your wages." And Moses' mom has got to be thinking, oh, this is great. (laughs) I get paid for nursing my own baby. And she's allowed to do this and to nurture him until it's time for him to be weaned. And after he's weaned, then he goes back to Pharaoh's daughter. And she effectively adopts him. So that's probably a good three years that he gets to spend with his mom and he probably speaks Hebrew pretty well by that time in fact he may even already be bilingual which would not be rare uh, for a child who's raised uh, in two language in two language culture we are told the child grew that's another way of saying time passed but by saying it this way it keeps our attention on the baby who's grown into a a boy now. Um, You see, we could could say, time passed. But then we're looking at time. And the storyteller doesn't want us looking at time. He wants to keep our attention on the boy. And the child grew into adulthood by stages. Because in the next verse, verse 11, it's going to say again that he grew. No names have been used in this chapter up until this point. And when Pharaoh's daughter takes custody of him, she names him Moses. And in Hebrew, that's like a word that means, it sounds like (coughs) a word that means drawn out. (coughs) Do you know what the word etymology means? Okay, those who don't know, I use it all the time, and you've been pretending like you know. (coughs) You know, you can just raise your hand and say, what does that mean? And I'll tell you what it means, unless I just made it up. (coughs) Then I'll tell you what I think it should mean. (coughs) Sorry. Um, (coughs) Etymology is the study of word origins. So some of our words come from Latin. Some of our English words come from Greek. uh, And some of our words are compound words, and and by the way, you can just, well, if you have a computer, you can just <coughs> Google uh, etymology and stick a word in there, and then you can find out where it came from. Sometimes it's fascinating from Latin through French to English. The reason I say that is because the Hebrew language has a lot of plays on words. And, you know, so the, the scripture says, and she called him. Thank you so much. This didn't come from the sink in there, did it? (laughs) Mm -mm. Uh, Oh, okay. It works. Feels kind of like phlegm anyway. Um, So uh, that's thick water. Um, I'm so sorry. That was gross. So the Bible says, and she called him Moses because he was drawn out of the Nile. Well, you can't find an etymology where Moses means drawn out. But the way that the Hebrew finds etymologies is by sounding the same. All right, It doesn't have the same meaning, if you look up in a, in a dictionary, but it sounds like this other word, and so Moses is like a Hebrew word that means drawn out. And when you think about it, knowing Moses, as most of us do, it's a name of the destiny, because he is drawn out. He's drawn out of the Nile. He's drawn out of his own people. Um, even when he's with them, leading them, he's not one of them entirely. He's a, he has a special role. He's drawn out of Egypt. On the other hand, his name in Hebrew, which would be Moshe, doesn't mean drawn out. It means one who draws out. And that also is a name with a destiny, because he's the one who draws Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. The next thing we know, he's an adult. Now, the storyteller is not interested in filling in the gaps. Uh, we learn a little bit about Moses' years growing up as the son of Pharaoh's daughter from Acts chapter 7, where Stephen refers to him as being trained and educated in you know, the, uh, the educational system of Egypt. He, he learned what the Egyptians knew. But otherwise, uh, these years are silent. And the storyteller isn't interested in those years. He's hitting the highlights, the turning points of Moses' life. His birth, the transfer into Pharaoh's palace, and now he's an adult. After all, um, uh, he's royalty. and. This next move is very important. He leaves the palace to go observe his own people, the Hebrews. And there's, there's no reason given why he has this affinity for, for them. What draws him away from the luxury of the Egyptian palace, the comforts, the opulence? What draws him away? To go look at the slave people. Yeah. He, he has their DNA, but he is not one of them anymore. Um, why is he drawn to them? I have an idea. And um, it's my own. I haven't seen this anyplace else, so it's probably wrong. But the Egyptians were very prejudiced against Hebrews. Now, if you remember in the book of Genesis, Joseph is a Hebrew, sold into slavery, but rose up to be second to the pharaoh. He was honored above everyone else in Egypt except the pharaoh. But the Egyptians would not eat a meal with him. In fact, when his brothers come into his home and he feeds them a lavish feast, he doesn't sit with them because they think he's Egyptian and he can't do that. On the other hand, there are Egyptians present for the feast too. And they do not sit with Joseph's brothers and they don't even sit with Joseph. As important as he is, we're told the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is disgusting to the Egyptians. Now, you grow up in a culture that has that kind of attitude towards you. You feel always like an outsider. I was watching this special on comedy. I won't watch specials on anything significant, but I was watching this special on comedy and it showed one clip from a, a Chris Rock stand-up uh, gig. And he, he said something that made a deep impression on me. And he, you know, at, in this particular moment, he was not a comedian. He was a so, social <coughs> activist. I mean, he said this not with a smirk. He said this with passion. It was a crowded room. And there had been lots of laughter. But he said, in the context of his routine, there's not a white person in this building that would trade places with me. And then he said, and I'm rich. He's not just rich. He's talented. He's popular. He's famous. He drew that that crowd there that night. And when he said that, I thought about it. And I thought, I have no idea what it is to grow up black in white America. I have no idea what it is to be other than Caucasian in America. And it gave me a, uh, a, a deep feeling of compassion for what people go through when they grow up different. I think that um, Moses realized always that he was different. He was not really an Egyptian. And when he became an adult and had the freedom to leave the palace grounds on his own, he wanted to go off and check out the Hebrews and see what their lives were like. And so I don't know how far he went before he saw this, but he saw an Egyptian slave master beating a Hebrew slave. And Moses looked this way and that, making sure no one was watching. And he struck down the Egyptian. He beat him to death. He did to the Egyptian, the same treatment the Egyptian was giving the Hebrew. In other words, in the Hebrew language, it's the same word. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. He went and beat the Egyptian. And he died. I think that this was spontaneous. Now, people say, you know, Moses tried to liberate Israel, and he killed one Egyptian. But when God liberated Israel, he killed the whole Egyptian army. Well, I don't think that he's necessarily going out there as a liberator. I think he's going out there in curiosity. And he, but he sees something that's outrageous. And um, it's, his reaction is triggered by the cruelty of someone in power abusing someone who's defenseless. And that someone who's defenseless is one of his own brothers in the sense of you know, a fellow Hebrew, they shared the same DNA, and so he unleashed that same treatment on the Egyptian you know it 's like the older brother grabbing you and shaking you and saying, "How do you like it? How do you like it?" Um, and killed him. Now uh, now Moses was in it. Um, he tried to cover up what he had done. Um, one one time, my dad was teaching on this passage, and he said, uh, uh, "And then Moses buried him, and he couldn't even do that right. He left a toe sticking out, or something, <laughs> uh, so so people knew. But but now he, he's in it, and so the next day he's back out there again, looking at the Hebrews. And this time he sees something that leaves him befuddled. Two Hebrews are in a skirmish with each other, and he breaks it up, and he says." What's the matter with you guys, your brothers? I mean, isn't it bad enough that the Egyptians are beating up on you all the time? Do you have to beat up on each other? And the one who started it said to him, who made you a ruler or a judge over us? You know, if you know the whole book of Exodus, answer, God no, but nobody knows that now. No one sees that now. And it hasn't even really happened yet. So, you know, perhaps Moses figured that they would recognize him as royalty, you know, and give heed to him. But they probably recognized him as another Hebrew. And he probably spoke to them in Hebrew. And they said, Who made you, boss? Um, the the offender said, who made you boss? And then asked, are you going to kill me like you did that Egyptian yesterday? And Moses said, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. They know, they know. And sure enough, the next thing that happens is Pharaoh heard about what Moses did. And Pharaoh sent soldiers to kill him. So Moses fled Egypt. <clears throat> Imagine that we were not us today, and it wasn't today. Imagine it's like 1,000 BC. You know, a good stretch of time after these events occurred. We're sitting around, we're listening to the storyteller, uh, tell the story of Moses. And maybe we've heard it before, but we, we just can't hear it enough. And after all, there are no movies to go see. So when the storyteller narrates how Moses came into Sinai, into the, the area of the Midianites, and he sat by a well, we say, oh, we all start smiling and nodding. Ho oh, oh, ho! Oh, oh. Moses sat by a well because we know what's coming next. When a single man, beginning in the book of Genesis, sat by a well, he ended up meeting a single woman, and they get married and have children. It's a type scene, according to Robert Alter. This is a type scene where a formula occurs where there's a pattern you can recognize, and the pattern is used in every instance. And what's interesting about it is how one event is different from another, how one event will break the pattern, and each one does. Uh, King Saul is a classic example. He met some young women by a well, and he didn't marry any of them. Um, The pattern's broken in that way. Jesus met a woman by a well, and it wasn't at all about uh, courtship or marriage. Um, and yet, that probably resulted in the most dynamic relationship of any ever. So we know what's going to happen. <clears throat> and sure enough, seven sisters arrive. <laughs> Moses, hope oh I get my pick. Um, seven sisters arrive, and uh, they have their father's sheep. But the shepherds who are there threatened them, and drove them away. They weren't going to allow them to water their sheep from that well. And people got very uh, territorial about their, their well. D- do you have a hummingbird feeder? Humming, hummingbirds are very much territorial. One hummingbird will claim your hummingbird feeder. And when others try to go near it, I don't know how they do this. You usually don't hear a hummingbird's wings flapping, do you? But you hear like this vibration, this loud vibration, as the one hummingbird drives off all the others. And that's what's, that happens in the book of Genesis. It happens now here in the book of Exodus. You're not going to water your sheep right now from this well. You're not going to allow it. So Moses steps in, and he helps these seven sisters to uh, water their sheep. He intervenes and waters the sheep for them. Now, to me, this looks like the same sort of situation in Egypt that motivated him to beat the Egyptian. He witnessed abuse. He sympathized with the abused. And he stepped in to do something about it. He's young. He's (coughs) strong enough to do something. And so he does something. It's not a bad quality in him, actually. Um, However, you can sometimes stick your nose where it doesn't belong, or you can go too far, as he did. Most sheriffs or police will tell you that the most dangerous situation to walk into and the one where they're most likely to be shot is domestic violence. And it may not be... The batterer, that poses the threat. But the person who has been being battered, who will jump a policeman who comes in to arrest the batterer. It sounds so strange, doesn't it? But that's why it's dangerous. It's volatile. Emotions are raging out of control. And there's already violence present. And you have no idea what you're walking into. So. Um, so we can sometimes get in trouble by allowing our compassion to take us into places we really don't belong. It calls for wisdom as well as compassion. I don't know why I said all that. Um, he helped them, we're told. And that translates a Hebrew word that later on will be translated saved. Moses is a savior. He's all about saving. The book of Exodus is all about salvation. This is really the message here. Um, And the next time we come to this word, it'll be in chapter 14, where it says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. He saved the sisters from the hand of the shepherds. And now, at this point, uh, well, the girls return home. Dad says, Wow, wow. Um, You got here so quickly, which is interesting because in terms of Moses just being born and him now being uh, 40 years old, we got here quickly because there's been very little. Now, think about that. You know, like um, one third of his life has already been lived and another third is about to pass by the time we get to chapter three, and then from chapter three through the end of Deuteronomy is the rest of his life. You know, so it's like slow motion. Now, right now, you know, it's fast forward, but it'll be slow motion. So his daughters get home fast. Wow, you you hurried up to get here. How come? They say, oh, you know, this Egyptian showed up and helped us uh, water the sheep. Okay, but now, uh, now we begin. The storyteller begins to name other people. You see, Moses' position at center stage has been well established by this point. So we can name Reuel, their dad, also Jethro, uh, also uh, Hobab. Um, Why all these names? Well, there are different explanations. We don't have to get into that right now. But They come to their dad, and they they, he says, "How'd you get here so fast?" She said, "They say an Egyptian helped us, and um, how do they know he's an Egyptian? That's probably his dress, his his whole bearing. You know, he he walks like an Egyptian." (sighs) (laughs) I'm thinking. Listen, listen, listen. I I. I really didn't mean to do that, but um, <laughs> but one year uh, when I was in Russia, I met with uh, American, an American pastor and his wife in Vladimir, and uh, in the course of our conversation, they said, Oh, you know, Americans stand out so we didn 't get it at first, but they had lived there several years, and they said americans." stand out, we can spot them now. And it doesn't matter what clothes they're wearing. He said, we just look at the way they walk. And Americans walk differently than Russians. Of course, Russians are, <laughs> another bad day. But um, uh, so I'm sure that that's how they, they see him as an Egyptian. They don't recognize that he's, he is Hebrew. And the dad says, well, where is he? Did you just leave him out there? Go and invite him to come here so that he can eat bread with us. Moses is welcomed, he's fed, and he's shown hospitality. And um, the host is also to get Able to get rid of one of his daughters. Now, um, to be welcomed, to be fed, to be shown hospitality, these things signaled safety. This is a safe place. And I told you before, the plot of this chapter is all about keeping Moses safe safe from the Nile, safe from Pharaoh. And now, uh, a place of safety, where he's welcome, accepted, and so on. So he's given a wife, he has his first child, and uh, he settles in. Now, the end of the chapter, Moses' situation is exactly opposite to his people who are still in Egypt. So it's like cut to Egypt, and uh, It's like this, now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. The king died. The king of Egypt died. Now, it seems irrelevant to Moses' new life at this point. Uh, and it didn't change anything for the people of Israel and Egypt either. Uh, their lives went on just as pathetically as before. And four words are used to describe or capture their misery. They sighed. This is an expression of heartache. In the book of Lamentations, this word appears frequently. And Lamentations is all about misery and loss and sorrow. This word occurs four times in the first chapter of Lamentations. This is where this sigh just comes from, out from a, a broken heart. They cried out like a shriek or a scream. You hear it, and you react. It was a cry for help. This occurs this word occurs often in the Psalms, the, the prayers of the Psalms, people crying for God's help. and they groaned. Stephen Porges, who I'm going to introduce to you again in just a minute, said high-pitched screams from another mammal, not just our children but also our dogs and cats, elicit a sense of urgent concern or empathy for another who may be feeling pain or injured. This was heaven's response to those four words describing their vocalization of their misery. And heaven responds with four words. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and literally, God knew. And I I like God knew much better than any other translation, not only because it's literal, but because he knows. We think he doesn't. We think he doesn't understand. We think we've been forgotten. We think that we're not special enough. Uh, I mean, where has God been this whole time? Like like the first chapter, he doesn't show up until the end. He's not mentioned until the end. Um, but now that we see this here at the end, we can read it back into the Previous events in the chapter, was it only maternal instinct that caused Moses' mom to make the ark for him to float in? Was it coincidence that Pharaoh's daughter found him or Moses' sister was nearby to work out the details? Was it God who has been protecting him all this time and brought him here to Midian where he marries the daughter of the local priest? Is this all just coincidence? Or has God's hand been in all of this? Now, the people of Israel don't know that God is preparing Moses. They don't know anything about his destiny. They don't know that God hears or knows, but he does. And and by the way, what he remembers is his covenant. And that plays big in the book of Exodus. From the start, Moses' mother saw he was a beautiful child. And Pharaoh's daughter saw the baby and was moved. They saw, and based on what they saw, they acted. Right? Saw, and they did. Moses saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he acted. And now God saw Israel's misery, is he going to act also? Wait until our next episode. (laughs) (laughs) I mentioned that Moses saved the seven daughters of Reuel. This first section of Exodus is about salvation, and really, as one commentator said, the story of Moses' deliverance from Egypt is to Judaism what the cross of Christ is to Christianity. This, uh, this, this whole salvation event is setting in the mind of the believer a paradigm of salvation, so that we recognize it when we come to the story of Jesus and the same word that is in the name Moshe and salvation is in the name of Jesus the name of Joshua which is the english, uh, english uh, the english version of the hebrew Yehoshua the, the shua part is salvation The Yeho part is God's name. Now, many times, um, sometimes here on Sunday morning, but more often in our Lexio Divina nights, we have talked about judging others. And those of us who attend Lexio Divina Divina, talk about how all of you judge others. (laughs) No, no. We we talk about our own tendency to make snap judgments and, and um, to have unkind thoughts just based on appearance. And uh, I think God's been working on us with that. But you know what we haven't talked about much, if at all, is how it feels to be judged. What if you know someone is evaluating you? Do you think you would ever be interested, um, or anxious in a job interview, you're being evaluated. Are you good enough for this job? Again, Stephen Porges says that being evaluated puts our bodies in a defensive state, that it throws our nervous system into stress mode, that famous fight or flight mode. If we know we're being judged, if we know, if we know that we're being evaluated, we tend to do more poorly because of the stress state, because it interferes with normal functions of the of the brain 's creativity, intelligence, instant access to information, all of that gets swamped by the rise of emotions. Stephen porges um, was very interested years ago in how emotions affected health and our mental state. Um, He was very interested in how our health affected emotions. And he looked for a connection between our thoughts and feelings and the physical body. And he found it in the vagus nerve, that its nucleus, its home, is in the midbrain, but it goes up into the somatic cortex that feels whatever is going on in the body and sends messages to the muscles to act and move. Uh, So the sensory motor cortex is now communicating to the peripheral nervous system through the vagus nerve. He found that the vagus nerve is how the brain signals the body to either go into fight and flight mode or Rest mode. He said, when we are in a defensive state, then we are using metabolic resources to defend. It's not merely that we can't be creative or loving when we're scared, we can't heal. Because the vagus nerve um, affects the heart, the lungs, the digestive system. And it, when it's prepared for stress, that's where our resources go to deal with stress. And they're not there to bolster the immune system or the rational brain in the prefrontal cortex. And as a result, we are less able to regulate our emotions and our reactivity, less able to control our temper. For optimum function of body and brain, safety is required. We have to feel safe. And he talks about the quest for safety. And he says it's innate in our bodies. Our bodies are always looking for safety. How often do you feel completely safe. And when you are safe, how much of that time and safety do you spend worrying about not being safe? He also talks about the brain's social engagement system. I really love this. How the brain was made to interact with other people. And again, how stress foils that interaction. I'm thinking of the times I've, I've been around people where I've been really nervous because they're such important people. My dad and mom one time were going to a benefit dinner for Billy Graham in Los Angeles. And they arrived at this big hotel. They got on the elevator. And Billy Graham and Ruth Graham stepped onto the elevator with them, the only four in that little box. And my dad, outgoing, you know, gregarious uh, dad, um, was standing there. And Billy Graham said, well, you're Chuck Smith. Um, and he said, I, I've been wanting to meet you. And my dad looked at him. <laughs> and Billy Graham cleared his throat. Of course, my mom is like, like stone. Billy Graham <laughs> cleared his throat and said, I'm Billy Graham. I've been wanting to meet you. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, well, it's nice to meet you too. I've been wanting to meet you and you know, then you know, collected himself. But what happened in that moment? It's the opposite of fight or flight. And this also is mediated by the vagus nerve. It's immobilization. It's like an animal playing possum. And when this hits your nervous system, well, sometimes people faint. They just collapse. Um, My wife and I and her sister were watching a special last night. Uh, Oh, okay. Bizarre things in the ER. Now my wife can handle this because she's a physical therapist, and she just loves gore. Um, Sometimes, (laughs) sometimes I excuse myself and come back when that segment is over. But um, this one part was about this weightlifter. who had injured himself, like, he's like strongest man in England, and he he is deadlifting, like, 400, 500 pounds, and it's ridiculous. And he twists his ankle, so he's down and out for a while. But then it showed several clips of weightlifters injuring themselves, which, you know, you got to love that. Um, So one of them, this guy does this, you know, this deadlift, and he's not big, but big weights on this bar, and he sets it down, and he stands there. And you think, perfect. No injury at last. And then he just collapsed. And Barbara immediately said, oh, that was a vagal something. Vasovagal. OK, vasovagal, right, so where his blood supply. He, he was holding his breath while he was doing the exercise. And um, so he passed out. And it was just, again, OK. So the vagus nerve is implicated in all these, in all these ways. And Stephen Porges figured this out. And he, 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 he talks about the social engagement system and when it functions best. He says it is this neural system that not only facilitates social interaction and enables social interaction to foster growth, health, and restoration, but also has the capacity to down-regulate our reactions and the neural circuits that evolved for defense. In other words, it's also the system that enables us to calm ourselves down so that we can have a normal conversation, so that we can engage with other people. I'm so sorry for going this late, but this has been speaking to me so much. A safe group, what's a safe group to you? Well, it's a place where you're accepted for who you are. You don't have to prove anything to belong there. Um, Your boundaries are respected. Don't lay hands on me unless you ask me first if you can lay hands on me and pray for me, because otherwise you're violating my private space. It's a, a place of non judgment, a safe group will listen with interest and empathy. <laughs> I came up with all these. This is how I feel about it. Um, <laughs> a safe group will hold your confidence. Does it sound like an AA meeting? Mm, a, a safe group is calm. Someone starts to you know, get a little bit too hyper, or they're yelling, or, you know, or they're obviously passionate about something, or angry about something. You don't feel as safe and you're not going to be as socially engaged, you're going to move away a little bit. Look, Jesus Christ is safety. And when we sit in silent prayer, we wrap ourselves in him, and we are safe. And you know what? If you're out and about, and you, you feel unsafe, or you start to recognize anxiety or discouragement, any sort of negative emotion, Two slow, deep breaths, and you can be back to where you were with Jesus that morning. That's why we practice, 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 so that with two deep breaths, we can be back in the safety of Jesus' presence. In the first Sunday of this new year, I talked about us barn raising together where we help each other build on the foundation of Jesus' teaching. Remember? you better. It was like my best illustration <laughs> in, in five years. Um, loving, loving environments provide safety. And having been in those environments, we project Safety. And if we project safety, then we are offering people an opportunity for salvation. To save, to be saved is to be safe. Would you stand with me, please? Thank you for your patience. I love you. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil. And lead us into eternal life in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.